Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Saturday, February 16th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 23. This episode is brought to you by my Fertility Awareness Education Initiative. Hashtag fam taught me. This is where I'm blogging and compiling my fertility awareness work for the purposes of educating cycling people about the advantages of autonomous menstrual management and to take charge of one's fate and future. You can also follow me on Instagram at famtaughtme to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations and I'd love to work with you on decoding your unique menstrual challenges. Feel free to reach out if you think you could benefit from some time together and I look forward to working with you. Today's episode is going to be about polycystic ovary syndrome, commonly referred to as PCOS. PCOS is not well understood, and conventional treatment for it lacks the proper care and consideration that it takes to truly address the underlying cause of the condition. Between 5 and 10% of cycling people in the U.S., or roughly 5 million, have PCOS, so this makes it one of the most common hormonal endocrine disorders. The first thing I'm going to do is go over the context and history of how the condition is understood, or rather misunderstood, and then I'll move on to talk about the process of ruling out similar but very different conditions which are commonly misdiagnosed as PCOS. From there, I'll explain the four main types of PCOS as defined by their root causes, and I'll talk a bit about what is now being called lean PCOS, or when the condition occurs without causing significant weight gain around the abdomen. I'll also talk about why conventional treatments are currently failing to fully address the condition, and in fact may be exacerbating it and setting someone up for more problems down the line. Lastly, I'll discuss how fertility awareness charting can be a massive resource for someone trying to get to the bottom of their PCOS condition, and the common myth that people with PCOS can't use fertility awareness because their cycle is irregular is obtuse and purported by people who don't actually understand how FAM works or what it can reveal to you about your overall health, especially hormonal conditions. So the first thing I wanted to do is talk about context because we have a patriarchal medical system that has disassociated us from our bodies. So we really need to think about the intersection between the so-called sex hormones, which are estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and the rest of the body's systems, because these hormones have an effect on every part of your body. Generally, the medical system treats us like there's the reproductive part of us, and then there's everything else, even through the specializations that you see in the medical system of, you know, gynecology and no connection to any of the other body systems that's kind of an effect of the misogynist society it doesn't reflect scientific reality uh, especially in regards to these hormones and what their purpose is so fertility specialists you'll see are very narrowly focused and a lot of times on drugs that they aren't really seeing the big picture of what's going on inside of the whole person And it takes so much more than drugs to properly address this condition specifically. So I think that that is a huge barrier to people getting the proper care that they need. And we also have a culture of fat shaming. So this is carried out by a lot of doctors that fat shame their patients who may have PCOS. So there's a lot of contempt from physicians and these calls to, you know, just eat less or work out more. 
uh, are completely unacceptable. And I think that you should fire your doctor if that is the type of advice that you're getting. Um, If you're suffering and you need more help, I think it's definitely smart to take control of the situation and remember that the doctor is working for you. So if you feel like you're not getting what you need, definitely try to stop working with that physician. Furthermore, untreated PCOS with the addition of your doctor or even your family or peers shaming you can lead to eating disorders and other psychological issues on top of having an endocrine disorder. Uh, So fat phobia extends even to a fear of dietary fat. The whole anti-fat phase of food really, it was a disadvantage to cycling people specifically because dietary fats contain cholesterol, which is an essential precursor to your hormones. So you really need healthy dietary fats to deal with PCOS, and we have this phobia of eating foods that have fat in it. So that, again, exacerbates the condition. And so all of this is kind of the context that we need to understand PCOS as a condition and understand what patients have been going through and the lack of care that they've been receiving because I think that it has prevented a lot of people from getting better over time Um, and it leaves people really discouraged and just feeling like they have nowhere to turn. So in part I'm making this episode to really discuss um, PCOS as a condition that can be autonomously managed and that you can take charge of without having to go through this medical process that may not even be serving you as a patient. So a brief introduction to PCOS. Polycystic ovary syndrome is a misnomer. It's not a gynecological condition, or really about cysts on your ovaries. It's a metabolic disorder, which you notice is completely missing from the name, Something with the word metabolic in it would be a more accurate title for this condition and what exactly is happening in the body. The endocrine disorder can affect as many as 1 in 5 women. There have been different studies, 1 in 10 to 1 in 5, 5 to 10%, something in that range. And PCOS is primarily a set of symptoms. So these symptoms can start in childhood, prepubescent, and continue past menopause. So this is another reason why it's not a gynecological disorder and why gynecologists are not equipped to address this condition. The only thing that connects it to gynecology is that there's the symptom of the ovaries having these multiple follicles, Um, but we'll get to that later. So there are genetic predispositions that exist for PCOS, making it more likely However, these genes can get activated by lifestyle and the environment that you live in. So it's one of the best conditions to actually respond to diet and lifestyle changes, which means that there's a lot that you can do to improve your quality of life and to also holistically manage PCOS without needing significant interventions. So that's what we would hope for. The next question to ask is, do you even have PCOS? So why would we ask this question? Before we get into the details, and considering the context of the medical system, 
we need to make sure that you actually have PCOS and not something else because it's regularly misdiagnosed. And again, because it's connected to gynecology but isn't a gynecological disorder, there's a lot that gets lost in translation. Uh, And not to mention PCOS isn't even one condition. So PCOS can be more well understood as a set of symptoms. Therefore, gathering biomarkers and tests, so some data about your condition, are necessary for kind of an elimination. You need to do a process of elimination to get to the bottom of the cause of your particular kind of PCOS. And if you don't have PCOS, but you're being treated for it and your doctor is treating you for it, you're not only not addressing your actual condition, you could possibly be worsening that condition. So it's definitely worth it to go through a process of ruling things out before determining that you have the classic form of PCOS. The first thing you're going to want to do is rule out hypothalamic amenorrhea. HA has many similar symptoms to PCOS, including the main one, which is loss of ovulation. There's also the fact that both conditions have high anti-malarian hormone, or the AMH test, and possibly the presence of polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. If you were diagnosed with PCOS only from ultrasound and an AMH test, it would be worth it to rethink your diagnosis. Hypothalamic amenorrhea is caused by undereating carbs or undereating in general, which makes it almost the opposite from PCOS, where too much sugar and too much carbs is an issue. So you can see how these conditions, even though they have similar symptoms, their cause is actually opposite. So uh, it's this is why it's worth ruling it out. Luteinizing hormone or LH tests can be taken on the second day of your cycle or any day if you aren't cycling, and it'll help you rule this out. If your luteinizing hormone test comes back high, it's gonna point to PCOS. But if your LH test is low, it's gonna point to hypothalamic amenorrhea. Unfortunately, this is further complicated by the fact that you can swing back and forth from having PCOS to having hypothalamic amenorrhea if you're not treating your condition properly. So do the LH test, which I believe you can get at-home tests such as ovulation predictor kits, which what that urine test is testing for is luteinizing hormone. And if you do this test at home, you can usually figure out where your condition is coming from. Is it leaning more towards PCOS or is it leaning more towards HA? And then you can actually get to addressing hypothalamic amenorrhea if that is your issue. Another condition that's important to rule out is congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH. This is a group of different genetic disorders that affect the adrenal glands, and it's misdiagnosed as PCOS around 9% of the time. A person with CAH lacks one of the enzymes that the adrenal glands use to produce hormones, and those hormones regulate your metabolism, as well as like your immune system, blood pressure, and other essential functions to your body. So you need to work with your healthcare practitioner to get tested for CAH. Um, This is genetic testing that you would be doing, and it can seriously change 
what is required from your, your healing process if you do have congenital adrenal hyperplasia and not PCOS. Lastly, we want to rule out adrenal androgen excess PCOS. So let's break this down a little bit. This is when your androgen excess is coming from your adrenal glands, which are above your kidneys and not your ovaries, like the classic PCOS. DHEAS, the hormone, only comes from the adrenals. So testing for high adrenal androgens, or DHEs, on a blood test is vital to ruling out adrenal androgen excess PCOS. So if you have high prolactin or high adrenal androgens, but normal testosterone and androstenedione, then you specifically have adrenal androgen excess. Adrenal androgen excess PCOS is an entirely different condition from ovarian androgen PCOS because it's not rooted in insulin resistance or underlying conditions that impair ovulation. It's mainly triggered by things that affect the adrenal glands. Supplements to address this include rhodiola, licorice, magnesium, and other androgen-blocking supplements like DIM or reishi mushroom. So with adrenal androgen excess, you have your excess adrenal symptoms that are happening with PCOS, but they're coming from a different area of the body than the ovaries. So you could see how without doing proper testing, PCOS would be the go-to that your healthcare provider is going to diagnose you with. However, you need to rule out that it's not your adrenal glands that are actually producing those androgens because, again, this is going to completely change the way that you address your condition and your healing. Now, once you've ruled out these similar serious conditions, you can be certain that ovulatory dysfunction and the excess testosterone is coming from the ovaries. So now you can conclude that you have PCOS based off of the proper metabolic criteria. So now that we understand what PCOS is not, what is PCOS? The key defining feature of this condition is ovulatory dysfunction and the overproduction of testosterone and androstenedione by the ovaries. Failure to ovulate is why you are deficient in progesterone, it's why you have high testosterone, and it's why you develop androgenic symptoms such as acne, hair growth, hair loss, or infertility. The main symptoms of PCOS are highly irregular menstruation and particularly long cycles. Signs of high testosterone. These are hirsutism, beard stubble, coarse hair, rough stubble, alopecia, severe or cystic acne, especially when it's across the chest, arms, back, or jaw. In PCOS, the ovaries are normal. Again, why is this a gynecological condition if the ovaries are normal? The ovaries want to just do their thing and release eggs, but they can't do that in the environment of too much testosterone. This is why you'll often see those multiple follicles on the ovary from multiple attempts to ready an egg for the purpose of ovulation in a given cycle. 
If you take away the imbalance of testosterone, the ovaries will go back to doing exactly what they know how to do. The condition triggers androgens, which wreaks havoc on our cycling hormones, which are antiandrogenic. So people with PCOS typically have low progesterone at the same time because this lack of ovulation cycling means that there's no corpus luteum to actually produce progesterone. And as I talked about in my previous fertility podcast, progesterone's pretty essential to a lot of your body systems and you you really need it uh, regularly. So when you're suffering from PCOS, you're missing out on the benefits of progesterone. So that's a, that's an issue as well as light spotting or bleeding that like continues to go on for long periods of time. That's your other main symptom of low progesterone. And again, I discussed that in the previous podcast in great detail if you want to get into it. PCOS has many long-term health risks, and these are pretty serious risks such as cardiovascular disease, fatty liver disease, and type 2 diabetes. This is what makes it a potentially serious condition that lasts beyond the reproductive years, and again, why the way it's treated currently is not adequate. PCOS is associated with mood disorders as well very closely associated with anxiety and depression. So low self-esteem is also part of this. It's common to not only be suffering the physical effects, but also the mental effects that come with low progesterone. So that's uh, a pretty serious issue. And I think mental health is actually key to healing this, that you actually need emotional support as well. Something that Again, the medical system is not willing to even admit um, that it's really related. So we know that testosterone is coming from the ovary, but the ovary is reacting to something else. Um, basically, the question is, okay, testosterone's coming from my ovaries, but why? And the real root here is mainly insulin resistance. Ovaries are actually the victim in this condition. They're affected by this condition. They're not the cause of this condition. So infertility and subfertility are the effects of PCOS, not the cause. And there's nothing wrong with the ovaries themselves. At the core, it's insulin resistance that affects ovulation, implantation, and inflammation. There is a set of criteria called the Rotterdam criteria that allows for you to be properly diagnosed with PCOS. So you must have two of three of the criteria present in order to be properly diagnosed. The first is ovulatory dysfunction, which is defined as the lack of or less frequent ovulation, high levels of androgens such as DHEA and testosterone, free or total testosterone, or symptoms of androgen excess because testosterone blood tests are kind of unreliable. So If you have androgenic symptoms, like the hirsutism, like the acne, and your testosterone test came back normal, you can actually kind of disregard the test and rely on the symptoms. Because if you're having those symptoms, it's pretty classic that you have androgen excess. And the last criteria is the polycystic ovaries. So many people who have PCOS don't have polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. So again, it's kind of like if 
the name PCOS isn't even required for someone to have this condition, then what business does it have being the name of the condition? It's really why the name is so misleading and that proper healthcare providers have called for this to be changed. The string of pearls is often what you'll see uh, online referred to in terms of the cysts on the ovaries. Oh, it looks like a string of pearls. Like there are many almost eggs that are like trying to get out of the ovary during ovulation but just can't do it. So sometimes you're seeing that on the ultrasound because there is this inability to ovulate Uh, and it's mainly because they're being stunted by the presence of testosterone in the ovaries. They're not necessary to the diagnosis because healthy menstruators also have polycystic ovaries just as multiple follicles prepare to be the next egg to burst. So what I'm saying here is that you could both have PCOS and not have polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound, or you could be completely healthy, not have PCOS, and have polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. So again, the most unreliable of the criteria is actually the polycystic ovaries. And it's really being understood incorrectly because of this. There's nothing inherently wrong with seeing multiple follicles on an ultrasound. It's only when it's combined with the other elements of PCOS where it really matters. So I want you to remember that ultrasounds alone cannot diagnose PCOS. That's huge because there's just way too much overdiagnosis happening, especially in younger people during the teenage years when ultrasounds alone can't diagnose this condition. And if your doctor isn't aware of the androgenic connection, it's possible you could be misdiagnosed, uh, especially at a young age where your cycle is just balancing out and you don't need an intervention, you just need time. The Androgen Excess Society guidelines suggest that PCOS not be diagnosed in teenagers. And if you have been diagnosed as a teenager, you should reconsider your diagnosis. But if it is diagnosed in teens, it has to be all three of the criteria. Uh, Ovulatory dysfunction for considerably long times, supporting high androgen blood work or androgen excess symptoms, and the polycystic ovaries on the ultrasound. Just one more note about teenagers and cycling is that we just think menarche or your first period is like, the menstruation and then your body just does cycling but that's again just not reflective of scientific reality it takes about 10 years for teenage cycles to mature into an adult quote-unquote regular cycle the body needs to gain weight around the time of pubescence teenage years and this is called adrenarch so similar to menarche meaning the beginning of menstruation adrenarch is the beginning of your pubescent hormones, you could say. During this time, teenagers become naturally a little bit insulin resistant and have androgen excess. This is like so that your your BMI, your uh, weight can increase, your bones can get denser. There's a lot of growth happening to the body during the teenage years. So this is a lot of times why with the androgen excess, you see that teens have acne or they have this weird kind of 
chunky weight gain happening, they're super moody, it all has to do with adrenarch. So at this time, ultrasounds may show those polycystic ovaries and irregular cycles are considered normal during teenage years. So there's a bit of overdiagnosis happening where doctors are saying, oh, there's an irregular cycle happening with the teenager, let's get them regulated through birth control or whatever. So that definitely calls into, into question kind of how this condition is being diagnosed. Is it being diagnosed too young? Is it being diagnosed with loose criteria or the adult criteria and not the teenage criteria? So as our first period begins, we're kind of kickstarting the follicle-stimulating hormone that uh, would begin the ovulatory process. But in identifying teen PCOS, rather than follicle-stimulating hormone properly taking over as the dominant hormone, the luteinizing hormone stays the dominant hormone. So this means that as people with PCOS grow older, they kind of get stuck in this puberty state of being. Like the body should be transitioning out of this state of being eventually around the age of 20 or so. Like most of those symptoms should be ceasing by then. And that's why there's stricter guidelines around the diagnosis in teens. But if you're seeing those kind of teenage symptoms go well into your 20s, then yeah, there's a good chance that there's androgen excess happening and that PCOS is one of the effects of it. Not to further complicate everything, but hormones are super complicated. Uh, this syndrome has four main types. So there's four kinds of PCOS. So when you get diagnosed with it, you not the work isn't done. You haven't figured out what's going on yet. You pretty much have just identified that you have these symptoms. So you have to treat the cause to better manage and heal the condition. So because there's four different causes, there's four different kinds of treatments, kind of, or four different directions that you have to go in, at least. Once you've established that you do, in fact, have PCOS, what kind you have is the next most important discovery to make some progress on how you deal with it. Let's talk about insulin-resistant PCOS. This is the most common kind, and I've talked about insulin resistance, but it's worth going over it in great detail. So here's the deal. When we eat, our blood sugar rises, and our pancreas releases the hormone insulin. This is how you metabolize your food, and the body absorbs the energy from that food and fuels your body. Blood sugar then goes back to normal on this descending arc until you eat again. If insulin is being regulated properly, you don't have consistently high insulin or high blood sugar. So if you could think about this in visual form, it would be like nice calm waves of you're eating, your blood sugar goes up, your insulin goes up, and then goes back down, but on a nice long arc. In contrast, when you're resistant to insulin, it means you're resistant to very small amounts of the hormone. You need more than normal as put out by your pancreas. Higher insulin levels mean insulin hangs around longer in the body and insulin binds to the ovaries, telling them to make more testosterone. Ovaries, which wanna put out the small bit of testosterone that cycling people do need, is suddenly ramping up production because of this excess presence of insulin. 
So now your cycle of blood sugar and insulin is more like sharp peaks and valleys. So if you're looking at a visual of someone with insulin resistance, your blood sugar goes up when you eat and it goes up really high, it spikes, and then you need even more insulin to address this because your body's insulin to, insulin resistant to small amounts. So you need a large amount, again, a, a sharp peak, and then eventually you're unsatisfied with your food and your blood sugar drops and you're hangry. So you have this process of blood sugar and insulin spiking and then like tanking. That might be telling you something if that's speaking to you. Definitely think about kind of how your body is processing the food that you're eating. So because you have this excess insulin, it's telling your ovaries to make excess testosterone and now you're getting all the secondary effects of that excess testosterone. So you're getting chin strap acne, you're getting hirsutism, which is like stubbly hair growth on your chin or face, and you're having these irregular cycles, really long cycles, or just seemingly not cycling at all. Over the years, what's happening is your pancreas, which is like working overtime to produce these high amounts of insulin, it gives up and it can no longer support this process. It's overworked. So your blood sugar is high. The body is getting the signal, release insulin to metabolize this food, but it's not receiving the signal as the body's stopped listening. Like you've tapped the button too many times and it's just ignoring you now. So that's how you've basically set yourself up in a pre-diabetic to even progressively type 2 diabetes situation. Everyone with type 2 diabetes, they started out with not too little insulin. Instead, they made too much insulin. So insulin is a growth hormone, and it's why infants and teens are naturally more insulin resistant because during that time, you need to grow. Your body is in a growth mode. But adults, they need much smaller amounts. They don't need to grow anymore. So an insulin-resistant person needs way more insulin than they should. So it's kind of this interesting process of how you've overworked this one part of your body and eventually it's going to give up and that's what's going to make you need this really high amount. When PCOS is going on, your body is storing more fat. Insulin resistance is feeding testosterone and they're playing, there's a feedback loop happening where they're playing back on one another. So it's why things can get really difficult in terms of taking control of the condition because it's now like cycling into itself and exacerbating itself. In this way, fat cells are not just sto fat storage as they were um, originally kind of theorized to be, but they're a part of the endocrine system. So again, we have to kind of think outside of the conventional scientific understanding to get to the bottom of this condition. So fat cells are not just storage, they're part of the endocrine system. And people with PCOS have enlarged fat cells. So again, we see this connection. This is what contributes to PCOS being a precursor to type 2 diabetes. And this is how the disease process can continue to go unchecked. Let's talk about treating insulin-resistant PCOS. The first thing is to correct the root problem of insulin resistance, or possibly another metabolic problem. I don't want to completely rule that out. And thereby reestablish your regular ovulation. Ovulation is so important because when you make your own hormones, 
they naturally combat the excess of testosterone. For example, when you ovulate, you produce progesterone. Progesterone is anti-androgenic. So you see how you need ovulation to combat the testosterone, but the testosterone fights the ovaries and kind of stops them from regular ovulation. So you have to coax your body to become more sensitive to insulin. That's how to get to the root of insulin-resistant PCOS. Some techniques are to work on eliminating sugar altogether and greatly reducing the amount of carbs that you're taking in. Carbs trigger bigger and more frequent insulin response than when you eat protein and fat. So if you're really suffering from insulin resistance, you need to prioritize proteins and fats and still make some room for carbs, but a much smaller percentage of your daily diet. And obviously, we need to address the Western food diet and why the food pyramid has the carbs at the bottom. Um, So, you know, kind of the diet that we've been fed our whole lives has set us up for one in 10 cycling people to have this condition. So it is a lot larger than just your individual choices. I would never say that. However, there are individual choices that you can make to take charge of kind of the cards that we've been dealt here with the way the food system works. Another technique, more muscle makes you more sensitive to insulin. So in this way, you are going to want to continue exercising, but less cardio. Weight training is really great at making you more sensitive to insulin. When you have more muscle, you are more sensitive to insulin. If you're trying to heal a hormonal condition, you need the deep sleep to deal with your sensitivity to insulin and to cycle your hormones properly in general. You're much more insulin resistant when you sleep less. So kind of have to think about how you can make changes to your rest time as well. There's also the strategy of using medication such as metformin, which helps with insulin sensitivity. However, know that metformin depletes B12. So supplementing with B12 is really important if you're also battling a thyroid condition, and I'll get to that in a moment. Some supplements that you can take that might help you in treating insulin-resistant PCOS are vitamin D. This is because vitamin D is actually a hormone. It's a complex molecule, and it has a strong association with fertility and also correcting insulin resistance. It strengthens the immune system as well. You would look for vitamin D3, which is mostly what you'll find in over-the-counter vitamin D, and you're looking to get 5,000 units per day. You could also try magnesium, berberine, or maitake mushrooms, which help improve insulin sensitivity. Lastly, you want to get tested. Let's talk about this for a second. Reference ranges and blood tests for testosterone are both inaccurate but they can be helpful. If you have the ability to do the test, the blood tests, I would say do it. However, using that as a sole criteria for androgen excess is not as important as addressing those androgenic symptoms. Normal testosterone on a test could be totally meaningless when you have androgenic symptoms. So doctors like to rely on tests 
They like to rely on reference ranges, but these are these have issues just like any other statistics that are taken, right? So if you are experiencing the symptoms, have confidence that you are on the right track. Your body is telling you what's going on. You don't need a blood test to tell you. So if you're feeling resistance from your physician about this, again, I recommend definitely taking charge and not allowing them to control your healing process for you because that's something that when working with people, I see a lot. Now I'm going to move on to the second type of PCOS called inflammation PCOS. Inflammation isn't necessarily bad. It's the natural way that your body processes and fights infections. But chronic inflammation, as I'm sure you've heard before, is problematic. In particular, it disrupts ovulation, it disrupts hormone receptors, and it increases androgens. I mentioned before that people with PCOS have enlarged fat cells. And these cells spill free fatty acids. This causes inflammation in the bloodstream. There's also fat necrosis. So when a fat cell dies, the immune system has to come in and clean it up. So you may have this low-grade inflammation from fatty tissue dysfunction as well as insulin resistance. So obviously there's an interrelation here between the insulin resistance causing an excess and an enlargement of fat cells and then the low-grade inflammation that comes from having fatty tissue dysfunction. So food sensitivities often can add to this low-grade inflammation. Inflammation is a chronic activation of the immune system, and it can be caused by a variety of environmental factors, certain stressors, or even gut microbiome issues. So now we have the, the GI tract involved. So again, like this is a whole body system. It's a whole puzzle to figure out what's going on and how you can help coax your body into a more healed state. And there's also the possibility that it's related to a sensitivity in gluten or a particular protein that's found in cow's dairy called A1 casein. So you might want to consider experimenting with stopping using cow's dairy. And if you like dairy, you can switch to sheep or goat, which doesn't have this protein. Or you can experiment with going for long periods, maybe 90 to 180 days without gluten, seeing how you feel. If you can get a food sensitivities test done, that can be really helpful for you because maybe you have been regularly eating a food that you're sensitive to. And once you eliminate that, that inflammation goes away, ovulation returns. So how do we treat inflammation PCOS? The key to knowing whether inflammation is involved is if you have other symptoms that indicate some sort of immune problem. Treating this type of PCOS involves an understanding of what is causing the inflammation. So you gotta figure out what's causing the inflammation and then work to heal that thing. Again, the focus on fats and proteins, especially ones that are animal derived, as well as removing wheat, dairy, and sugar from the diet can be really helpful to understanding if diet is what's causing that inflammation. There's also, like, how's your water quality? What's the air quality like? You have to think about overall what could be causing said inflammation because it's one of those things that it could take you years to decode what exactly is going on. 
Uh, you could also take probiotics to help your gut, as well as magnesium, zinc, berberine, um, any anti-inflammatories like the mushrooms, any of the wood mushrooms like reishi are great for dealing with chronic inflammation. So I would definitely say it's a, it's a condition all on its own, the inflammatory PCOS, but it's also really tied to the first kind of PCOS as well. So you could potentially have both issues happening at once. So the third form of PCOS is thyroid and or mineral deficiency PCOS. So the thyroid is a huge subject and worthy of its own discussion. But in short, the thyroid hormones enter every cell in our body and they change the way that each cell metabolizes. And it rules the rate at which our metabolism functions. So the thyroid is obviously integral to whole body functioning. Hypothyroidism, which is known as the slow thyroid, is clearly associated with insulin resistance. So again, here we go, everything's all interrelated in this fertility work. It's much more common for PCOS people to also have thyroid issues, specifically the slow thyroid and even Hashimoto's, which is the autoimmune version. So there's the connection to low-grade inflammation. If you have Hashimoto's, and you have PCOS, and you have this inflammation, it's like this triangle of hormone, hormonal issues and imbalances that are happening and all playing off of each other. So in order to heal PCOS, you have to have a healthy thyroid. It's just too important to ignore the role of the thyroid in ovulation. You need T3 hormone, T3 thyroid hormone, to ovulate. To go back to insulin for a second, insulin has two main roles. The first role is to take sugar that's in your blood and put it in your cells. So that keeps your blood sugar levels down because it's taken it out of the bloodstream, put it in the cells where it wants to go. The second role is it blocks and slows the rate of fat breakdown because it's an anabolic hormone which helps us grow tissue and store energy. And that's why young people have an excess of it because they need to grow tissue and they need to store energy. Having a slow thyroid means that you have a slowed metabolic rate. If you add high insulin to this, which is the blocking of fat breakdown, you can see why it's extremely hard to lose weight, especially around the abdomen when you have PCOS because you have the thyroid affecting your metabolism, the insulin blocking the fat breakdown. So you could be working extremely hard, like working out really hard, doing a lot of cardio, and you're like not losing this weight. And the reason why is because you have a metabolic condition that it goes a little bit deeper, like your healing has to go a little bit deeper to address what exactly is happening. Your thyroid and your ovaries need minerals to regulate properly. This is like absolutely essential that you get these minerals. Deficiencies in iodine and zinc can severely disrupt thyroid regulation and ultimately impede ovulation. So if you have a thyroid condition, you probably have some ovulatory disturbance of some kind and you have to, you have to work on that. And if your thyroid condition goes unchecked, it's very hard to dig yourself out of the PCOS 
kind of cycle that's going on. So what's the treatment for thyroid PCOS? The first thing you can do is go in to get some more thyroid testing and you need a full thyroid panel. This includes reverse T3, TSH, free T3, free T4, antithyroid peroxidase, and antithyroglobulin. The reason why you need more than a regular thyroid panel, which is normally just a TSH test, is because insulin resistance causes an increase in reverse T3. Reverse T3 is the inactive version of the hormone. So thyroid hormone isn't really working. It's just going into an inactive state. So you could get a thyroid TSH test done and it come back completely normal. So again, your practitioner makes the incorrect assumption that your thyroid is fine when it's not. That's why you need a full thyroid panel. You need to see what's going on with reverse T3 to kind of get to the bottom of your thyroid condition. When you're insulin resistant, the body thinks it needs to preserve energy. So this is like putting on a permanent energy conservation mode or like even like a starvation mode if you think about evolutionarily. It shunts the active hormones into their inactive mode, like in the case of your thyroid. You need to treat your underlying thyroid disease or mineral deficiency in order to improve your PCOS condition and heal it. Some supplements that you could look to are ashwagandha, which is a plant-based thyroid stimulant, or desiccated bovine thyroid, which is an animal-based thyroid stimulant and actually contains the same bioavailable thyroid hormones that we need. So you can use either ashwagandha or desiccated thyroid medication to uh, supplement the thyroid hormones that you're lacking and try to bounce your body back towards a regular thyroid uh, and metabolism and ultimately the return of ovulation. I'm hoping you're not too overwhelmed because there is one more kind of PCOS, but it's not really a true form of PCOS. It's more of a temporary state that you've put your body in. So the simplest and most preventable cause of androgen excess is hormonal birth control. The fourth kind of PCOS is pill-induced. Some, not all, but some types of birth control use the synthetic progestins that have a high androgen index. This means that if you were to look at their chemical structure, they're more testosterone-like than they are progesterone-like. So we call them progestins, but they're actually not the same chemical as the progesterone that our body makes. So when you actually look at what the structure is like, you can look at bioavailable progesterone, you can look at bioavailable testosterone, and then you can look at the synthetic progestin. And what you'll find is that it's closer looking to testosterone than it is to progesterone. They're androgenic or masculinizing, and they can cause, the progestins can cause symptoms such as acne, hair loss, and other psychological effects like anxiety and depression. Certain progestins have this high androgen index, and they're not bioidentical hormones. So many people will experience a post-pill PCOS. When they come off the pill, they'll suddenly get these androgenic symptoms, um, but for a short period of time. 
don't accept a diagnosis of PCOS if you've like been evaluated right after coming off the pill. The body will bounce back with a natural treatment like diet and supplements within about six months unless there are other issues like a B12 deficiency or a thyroid problem. So why is the pill not a treatment for PCOS? Because if you go to the gyno and you get diagnosed with PCOS, the first thing they're going to recommend to you is the pill. So why am I claiming that the pill isn't a treatment for it when it's the most common one? The biggest reason is because it impairs insulin sensitivity. And the main factor of healing PCOS is to make your body more sensitive to insulin. So you can't use a pharmaceutical that impairs insulin sensitivity to correct insulin resistance. Prolonged use of the pill to treat PCOS can lead to diabetes, cardiovascular and skeletal issues, and infertility later in life. The pill is a barrier to proper treatment of PCOS because it does not address the root cause of the condition and it manages patient's symptoms all the while the disease process is advancing. So when you use hormonal birth control, the levels of estrogen, which are around five times our physiological levels, this puts your ovaries to sleep. Your hormonal cycling stops and you're in a permanent plateau in terms of hormonally, you go through a cycle which includes peaks and valleys. And when you use hormonal birth control, you put those hormones in a plateau, so very unnatural state of being. High levels of estrogen increase sex hormone binding globulin, which binds to testosterone. So there's a lot less free testosterone circulating when you're taking hormonal birth control. So you have sex hormone binding globulin binding to testosterone and it's mitigating your symptoms. So that's why when doctors prescribe it, they're trying to help the person mitigate their acne or their hair growth. And so it can temporarily deal with those issues on the surface. But meanwhile, what's causing the acne and hair issues? It's the insulin resistance. And using these drugs, though they mitigate the symptoms, they worsen your insulin resistance over time, which means that eventually, when you do want to get off the pill, which you eventually will, uh, it's highly unlikely that you're going to want to take this every day for who knows how long or even the rest of your life. So when you do want to get off, it's, it's going to cause a bigger reaction and that might kind of keep your dependency on the pill. It's something that people talk about that are critical of the pill. They talk about kind of this cycle of getting off and then either psychologically or physically feeling like they can't do anything about their condition, so they go back on. And there's this interplay between, oh, I feel okay, I have, I'm using these drugs to mitigate these symptoms, but not ever really addressing the root cause. High-dose estrogen that's in the birth control pill, it increases the activity of thyroxine-binding globulin. TGB binds to thyroid hormone. So more circulating TGB leads to lower levels of free thyroid hormone available for use by our body. So what does this equation mean? When you have increased thyroxine binding globulin binding to your thyroid hormone, you basically have the birth control pill 
causing or exacerbating hypothyroidism. This I can tell you from experience uh, because my personal use of the pill resulted in a hypothyroid condition that took me two years to actually dig myself out of, even though I only took the pill for a single year. Birth control pills deplete B vitamins, selenium, zinc, and the amino acid tyrosine from our bodies. So what does this mean? All these vitamins and minerals that I've mentioned are necessary for proper thyroid function are now depleted by using the pill. PCOS occurs in hand with low progesterone, which we know you need ovulation to make. This means PCOS can also be an issue of estrogen dominance, which the pill cannot deal with because it further suppresses ovulation. So without ovulation happening regularly in the condition of PCOS, you have lost out on progesterone and the benefits of progesterone. And as I discussed in the previous podcast, progesterone and estrogen are always talking to one another. They're in, always in flux with one another in the cycle. So when you're lacking progesterone in the equation, this means that you have too much estrogen or estrogen's allowed itself to become dominant. So when you're taking the birth control pill, you're further suppressing ovulation. So you can't get the progesterone that you need to combat your estrogen dominance. So you, again, like you have to know the scale of balance in order to properly address PCOS and all that the birth control pill does for PCOS is mitigate symptoms while exacerbating underlying causes. And that's my concern with it being the only treatment ever given is that, well, what about the underlying condition? What about acknowledging what's really going on with the endocrine system and how it's affecting the rest of the body? I want us to think about this one other way, which is to look at the hormonal process that's going on with PCOS. I mentioned before that there's an elevation of luteinizing hormone, and it's feeding into testosterone. In a healthy cycle, follicle-stimulating hormone is supposed to become the dominant hormone and push estrogen out of the egg. The cells in the follicle that are actually making more estrogen surge luteinizing hormone. And that's the ultimate trigger for ovulation, the, the actual event of ovulation happening. But with PCOS, your follicle-stimulating hormone is lacking. It's lower than it should be. So its role in the estrogen-making part of the follicle doesn't develop properly. So your follicle that's readying itself for ovulation, it's not making estrogen very well. And instead, the thick cells are stimulated more by luteinizing hormone. So what are those cells doing? They're making more testosterone more consistently. So their job is to be making estrogen, but they're making testosterone. So there's this process of your body for long periods of time is trying to ovulate, but it's like failing because it doesn't have the right hormonal conditions. So this is what gives people with PCOS more estrogen for a longer period of time. If you look at the hormonal cycle in a healthy person, estrogen should be a relatively short rise that comes to a peak and then begins to descend right before ovulation. But in PCOS, there's this really drawn out estrogen period. 
it goes up a little, it goes down a little, it might go up again. And overall, there's an actual longer period of time during the cycle where you have excess estrogen. So somebody's levels, you could say, over the course of a given cycle, one, their cycle will be longer, and two, the estrogen will go on for a much longer period of time. Eventually, those cells, they will make enough estrogen to trigger ovulation. So this is why you have long cycles with PCOS that do eventually have a menstruation and start the process over. It's that the follicular phase of someone with PCOS is very long. Commonly prescribed androgen-suppressing drugs like spironolactone, or commonly known as spiro, they can help deal with the symptoms of androgen excess, but they don't address why you have androgen excess. They also have the ability to disrupt ovulation and adrenal functioning, which is like, you again, you need that to be healthy to heal PCOS. So Spiro is similar to the progestin in Yaz or Yasmin, and it, again, it's a, it's a symptom mitigator. It's not, it doesn't heal PCOS. In short, you need a healthy thyroid and you need regular ovulation to make your own antiandrogenic hormones. The pill can only further suppress the healing process while exacerbating underlying conditions. And this is why I strongly reconsider, would strongly reconsider utilizing it as a treatment for PCOS. And definitely reconsider your physician if this is all that they know how to treat this condition. It could just be that they went to school for this and they're, they're just going by the book. And that's fine, but it might not be what you need as a patient. And you might need to look elsewhere if their only recommendation is birth control. Now I'm going to talk about lean PCOS. PCOS is a condition that's often associated with weight that's distributed particularly around the abdomen or middle area of the body, but lean people also have the condition, and them not getting diagnosed just has to do, again, with like this culture of fat shaming and how we assume that fat people are unhealthy and lean people are healthy when that's just, that's not true with PCOS and it's not true in general. Leaner people with PCOS have a little bit different of a hormonal pattern. They may have completely normal fasting insulin levels. So if you go get a fasting insulin blood test done, that might come back normal. But they often secrete much more insulin after the consumption of glucose compared to women that don't have PCOS. So you, it's interesting. You could have a spectrum of the same condition going on. When insulin goes up, capillary growth happens. Insulin stimulates the growth of capillaries, but when your blood vessels are insulin resistant, they become restricted. So you can also have a lot of um, circulation issues, is what I would call it. Uh, Hands and fingers and toes, hands and feet being very cold. It's because you have insulin resistance that's causing this blood vessel constriction. So just another secondary symptom that you're like, hmm, that could be me. Like it could, it's definitely think about it. Uh, Lean PCOS folks often have a problem with their capillaries and it can lead to cardiovascular disease later on. So again, yeah, like my hands and feet get cold, not a big deal, but cardiovascular disease is a big deal. So you may want to listen, again, listen to your body and what it's telling you. 
cardiometabolic issues are really serious and they're under-researched. Um, so g- getting proper care for that once you do have that condition could be difficult as well. Here's a really good example of how our hormonal balance is intimately tied to the cardiovascular system. Testosterone causes the arteries in cycling people to constrict, but we want them to be dilated. When your arteries are constricted, you get hypertension. But in a cycling person, estradiol makes you retain sodium, and progesterone, in contrast, is a natural diuretic. So you have to look at our physiology and understand, just try to understand it in the context of the sex hormones and why we need them for much more than just fertility. Like calling them sex hormones is a misnomer as well because they do so many other things with the other body systems. They're connected to your bones. They're connected to your cardiovascular system. They're connected to your gut health. Um, In this and many other ways, addressing PCOS in young people is preventative health care for the future. Uh, So you can do some different testing if you believe that you are a lean person with PCOS. Um, Some tests that I've looked into are the HOMAIR test, the quickie test, the hyperinsulin anemic glycemic clamp test instead of tests that are more common such as HbA1c and fasting glucose, which again will come back normal in someone who has lean PCOS. So if you can work with your healthcare provider to get that testing done, um, it could, you know, just bring you a little bit closer to understanding your particular condition and how you can best heal. I want to take a little time to talk about diet's role in healing because it can be, you know, huge. First off, the context of where we're living, we have an industrial food system, so most people in the Western world are eating too much processed carbs and sugars on a daily basis, like over a long period of time. However, there's other factors that need to be considered in the industrial food system as well. These include the chemicals that are used in the environment, pesticide exposure, personal care products or cleaning supplies that have estrogen-mimicking compounds, These are all real issues to contend with, and reducing your toxic load overall is going to help you deal with any hormonal condition. But in general, with PCOS, some foods to avoid. Sugar is the big one. Processed carbohydrates would be the next one. So if you're going to have carbs, get them from vegetables and vegetables that have all those minerals packed in them as well instead of from something that is a more empty carbohydrate like rice. Or pasta. You could also work on avoiding grain foods, refined grains, like greatly limit or almost avoid what I've just mentioned if you can, even if it's for a set period of time, like 30 days. Remember that vegetable products, grains, beans, legumes, fruits, those are all hefty sources of carbohydrates. Like we forget that fruits and vegetables are carbs, but macro wise, that is what they are. So the amount and in what form we consume them matters. I always talk about how I have this mild insulin resistance that I've been able to manage, but I can't just go and have a vegetable juice because I've taken all the fiber out of the vegetables and now I'm just drinking the sugar. And for my body and for what's going on with my hormonal condition, I just that isn't particularly healthy, even though vegetable juice is considered a super healthy food. 
So what form you're getting things in really matters. The industrial food system is ultimately why we eat so much of these foods. So be cautious if you consume grains, even if you consider it to be a moderate amount. There's also soy. Soy is one of those foods that is naturally phytoestrogenic. And not that eating it would be terrible for us, but because we're already exposed to so many xenoestrogens, soy can kind of just contribute to an already taxed adrenal system. I don't believe that soy is like an inherent issue, but I think that we are kind of, we are dealing with over estrogenic life. And so as a, as a food while you're healing PCOS, I think it's just smart to avoid it if you are dealing with estrogen excess. You need a decent amount of clean and properly raised animal proteins and fats, which do not spike blood sugar and will keep you full for more than four hours. So you're trying to train your body to get out of that hypoglycemic hangry feeling of like the crashing that's happening with the blood sugar. So you need to be eating foods that make you full for more than four hours. Like if the food can make you full for four to six hours, then it's a good food for PCOS, particularly if it's animal proteins and fats. And you'll find that when you eat those foods naturally, you do feel full for longer. You need a lot of saturated fat and cholesterol, which is again, like we've been taught, you don't want cholesterol, cholesterol is bad, but not when you're trying to heal your hormones, it's not. Eat the skin and fatty parts, eat the organs, eat butter. Eggs would be like an essential breakfast. Inside of an egg, you have everything you need to get ovulation going. Everything inside the yolk is like all of these wonderful minerals, fats, cholesterols. It's really great. You could also do things like grain-free granola, which could be made from nuts or coconut to cut those carbs and eat some yogurt um, that has some protein in it as well. Like that's a good one. You can make your own sausage patties with ground meat and vegetables. You can make fish curry with bone broth. And this is really great to start your day off with. If you can get that in as breakfast, like you're setting yourself up to heal. Anytime you have carbohydrates, though, which you still do want to get some carbs, you're going to want that immediate energy. Uh, make sure that you match it and eat fat or protein with that carbohydrate. So like when you make sauteed vegetables, put the, a lot of fat, put a lot of oil on them, put a lot of butter in them, put some salt on them. Make them taste good so that you want to eat them. Like the fat is really what is so savory um, about vegetables when they're cooked. And you don't want to get bogged down with the numbers either. Um, but check in with yourself after you eat. Like decide when you've had enough food. Try to focus on like listening to your body. I think a lot of PCOS is just like, let me just listen to what's going on. Like really listen. Make some changes. Listen to how the body feels about that. I think unlearning restricted eating is like so, so, so important. There's no perfect formula. There's no perfect amount of calories for this condition. We have really bad eating habits. We have really negative relationships with food. We've been taught to have this negative relationship. So one of the largest components of healing is food. And PCOS is a health condition that responds best to nutrition alone. So that's like one reason why you might want to consider really prioritizing diet's role in healing this condition for you. So why do I teach fertility awareness charting to help heal PCOS? Contrary to popular belief, 
Charting your cycle with fertility awareness can give you invaluable health information without having much of the invasive testing that I've recommended already. PCOS can be easily identified in the chart and can give you clues to your recovery process, as well as giving you ways to see your recovery happen through taking your own biodata. I myself was able to observe this through uh, the process of tracking my waking temperature, where I found out that I had hypothyroidism and that I spent the next two years working to heal my thyroid. And I was able to actually see those temperatures rise and my average cover line, the defining line between my pre-ovulatory and my post-ovulatory temperatures, I was able to see that go up an entire degree in two years. So even though I only took the pill for a year, it took two years to actually heal my thyroid, but I was able to, through my bio data, basically like prove this scientifically, um, which is so cool (laughs) and amazing. So there's some keys to seeing PCOS in your charts. The first thing that you're going to see is long cycles and highly variable cycle ranges. So this means your cycle is often more than 35 days and that the difference from month to month could be 35 days and then the next month it's 135 days and then after that it's 90 days. So if you're having long cycles without a menstruation and variable cycles from one menstruation to the next, there's a good chance that you should look into what's causing this ovulatory disturbance and maybe some of the criteria of PCOS does speak to you. The second thing is your waking temperature charting. You're gonna see a significant delayed ovulation, which means if you take your temperature every morning, you're not going to see the ovulatory spike happen until the very end of this long cycle. So if your cycle is 90 days, you might not see a temperature spike for 75 days. Uh, Or you might see a lack of ovulation altogether where you never see a sustained rise in temperature. So you could be having long anovulatory cycles. So long cycles that don't even have an ovulation, which means, again, you're lacking progesterone when uh, when you're not getting ovulation happening at all. With PCOS, a lot of times it's not happening for a long time, but it does eventually happen. So the last key that you may see by taking your own daily bio data with fertility awareness is long patches of cervical mucus observations. So this is greatly connected to estrogen dominance. In the last podcast, I talked about how cervical mucus and cervical position is always responding to the changes in estrogen. So if the chart almost looks as if your body is making several attempts at ovulation, so there's several um, fertile fluid patches or periods where you have a wet vaginal sensation going on, but like for much longer than the usual short spike that happens before ovulation, this is like a clear indication that you have estrogen dominance and something that is really common with PCOS. So you have a patch of cervical mucus and you think that your temperature is gonna go up, but then you notice your temperature doesn't rise and you might have a few days of dryness and then another long patch of, of fluid. So it's your body like trying to, again, like trying to create the estrogen in the follicle that it needs, but it's lacking. So you have this long period where you have estrogen dominance basically for much longer than the actual healthy cycle would denote. 
So you want to use your waking temperatures also to check on your thyroid and your metabolic rate. So this is like one of the huge things that people miss out on with charting. You get a really accurate read of how your thyroid and how your metabolism is doing. Thyroid blood tests can come back normal when your temperatures are clearly indicating that you have a thyroid condition. So I've heard time and time again from people who are just starting out charting with fertility awareness that they already went to their doctor and their doctor already told them they don't have a thyroid condition. And that's all well and good. But if you take your bio data and your temperatures are clearly lower than they should be, this is like unequivocally you have a slow thyroid. The test, the blood test is wrong. Um, the, the temperature is a much more accurate read, especially when it's taken daily and over time. So cycle to cycle, if you're seeing the same range of temperatures, you can surmise that you have a thyroid condition. So pre-ovulatory temperatures in the 95s and 96s in Fahrenheit with post-ovulatory temps in the high 96s and 97s Fahrenheit will indicate hypothyroidism. So you need to address hypothyroidism to heal PCOS, and a healthy thyroid, in contrast, will have a pre-ovulatory temperature range of low 97 degrees Fahrenheit and a post-ovulatory temperature range in the high 97 Fahrenheit to low 98 degrees Fahrenheit. You can also go back to the previous podcast that discusses reproductive health issues to talk more about the specifics of waking temperatures connection to the thyroid because I go into greater detail about these temperatures and how to tell if your thyroid is too slow or too fast. But with PCOS, you're almost always seeing a slowed metabolism. So you're seeing pre-ovulatory temperatures and post-ovulatory temperatures that appear to be too low in range in gen you know we were talking about the whole chart not day to day we're talking about in general and also that cover line that you draw in in between your pre and post ovulatory temperatures is kind of like you can say the average the mean of those the lows and the highs so you're going to want your basically you're going to want your cover line to be around 97.5 or so a few point points either direction, fine, but if your cover line is like below 97 degrees Fahrenheit, you're dealing with uh, a slow thyroid. You can also track spotting throughout your cycle with fertility awareness. This is useful for understanding if you have a chronic sign of low progesterone, or you could mark down ovulatory spotting, which is the correlation of light pinkish cervical mucus uh, before or around the time that the temperature spike of ovulation is happening. So that can also occur more commonly in longer cycles. Like basically you might track your cycle for that 75 days and then finally you see the temperature spike and right around that time you had a little bit of spotting. So it's supposedly something that uh, is more common with PCOS. So you can use fertility awareness to track that as well. Lastly, you can use ovulation predictor kits to measure your luteinizing hormone and you can mark them in your chart. So grab some ovulation predictor kits and you can test yourself for long periods of time 
And if you're getting lots of positives, you know that these are false positives and you just have high LH um, from having PCOS. So you'll know you've ovulated when your temperature sustains a rise for three or more days. So don't use the ovulation predictor kit as a, a sign of ovulation necessarily because it, it's really it's a, an LH measurement kit in actuality. So you can use charting to mark down when you get any other symptoms that are related to the condition and what parts of the cycle they occur in. And often there are patterns that the chart will reveal to you over time. So in the show notes, I'll try to link to a typical PCOS chart so that you can visually get a sense of how the chart looks and why you might want to use PCOS uh, charting to heal your condition over time and to track your progress. Wow, that was a lot of information. I hope that that was able to help you in some way. I really hope that you've enjoyed this extensive delve into the complex hormonal spectrum of conditions that are described as PCOS. I am working with folks who need assistance one-on-one right now to help people understand how to use charting as a tool of autonomous menstrual healing and management. And understanding the charts, in addition to working with healthcare practitioners, can lead you in the right direction. There are also some times where doctors can't offer you the proper assistance that you need. So charting can help you take control over your condition and really give you some individualized biodata. It gives specific clues to the underlying cause of your PCOS condition. And so it can be a huge advantage and I've seen it become a huge advantage to people who have PCOS who are using charting. I think that once you get an understanding of what the healthy hormonal pattern is versus what a PCOS pattern is, you can really start to to make some decisions for yourself. And I think a lot of this condition is just that people don't understand what it is, how it works. Their doctors don't make any of this information available. If you're interested in working with me, please reach out and we can talk about whether I can possibly be of help to you. I would I would love that. I'm really working on this condition specifically because I know how many people it affects and I know that the conventional treatments are are not appropriate. So I'm really looking forward to what we can do in the future to help prevent this. And like I said before, trying to manage and even heal PCOS completely is preventative healthcare. And uh, the more that we can do for ourselves, I think the better. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please recommend it to someone. Please like and subscribe to this podcast as it'll help others find it in the future. This episode is brought to you by my fertility awareness education initiative, hashtag fam taught me. This is where I'm blogging and compiling my fertility awareness work. You can follow me on Instagram at fam taught me to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations and I'd love to work with you on your menstrual challenges. Please reach out at your earliest convenience. This concludes episode 23 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.